Well, it's time to say a few more things about Abraham and Sarah and their family uh, today. I kind of want to reboot, get us back to where we've been, because we've added some characters to the story. And so put together a little family tree just to remind us all of where we've been. We've got a picture of that on the screens here. Family tree starts with Abraham and Sarah, who from the time we met them were elderly. They were childless. You'll recall that Abraham took a second wife, a woman by the name of Hagar, and Abraham and Hagar together uh, gave birth to Ishmael. Uh, but later on in the story, the Bible says Abraham sent them away. In our parlance, we would call that a divorce. He divorced Hagar, uh, and Ishmael was only intermittently part of his life thereafter. Meanwhile, Abraham and his first wife, Sarah, they did give birth. They gave birth to Isaac. You see him on the family tree. Now, after Sarah's death, Abraham remarried, and the Bible says he had several more children, but I didn't include them on the family tree because they aren't particularly relevant to the biblical story, and I didn't want to confuse things too much. I only wanted to confuse things a little. But Isaac grew up, and in the passages we read last week, he met and married a woman by the name of Rebecca. And so you can see Isaac and Rebecca on our family tree. Now, the family tree uh, graphically represents these stories. It's just kind of an illustration of the inheritance or the succession of the, the inheritance and the promises made to Abraham by God. But you know that we aren't talking first and foremost about biological heirs. We're talking about spiritual heirs. I've read to you several times in the last couple of months from Galatians chapter 3, verse 29. I'm going to read it again, and you'll see this on the screen. And now that you belong to Christ, you are the true children of Abraham. In other words, you can find your own name on that family tree because you are his heirs, and God's promise to Abraham belongs to you. So we have become the spiritual heirs of Abraham. But that only happens because of Jesus, right? That only happens because of Jesus, who doesn't appear in the timeline. He doesn't appear in our Bibles until the New Testament. We're reading from the very beginning of the Old Testament. And so the Old Testament, almost in its entirety, is the story about how God worked out his promises in the lives of Abraham's biological heirs, long before you and I could become his spiritual heirs through Christ. And so that's why we're looking at their stories and we turn our attention back to them today. One of the things that we noticed last Sunday about the stories of Isaac and Rebekah is how so many of the challenges that they faced in their lives mirrored the challenges that their parents, Abraham and Sarah, faced. So we probably shouldn't be surprised to discover as we dive back into the text today that when Isaac and Rebekah decided to start a family of their own, they found themselves in a very familiar predicament, infertility. I'm going to read to you from Genesis chapter 25, beginning in verse 21. It says, Isaac pleaded with the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was unable to have children. The Lord answered Isaac's prayer and Rebekah became pregnant with twins. But the two children struggled with each other in her womb. So she went to ask the Lord about it. Why is this happening to me? She asked. And the Lord told her, the sons in your womb will become two nations. From the very beginning, the two nations will be rivals. One nation will be stronger than the other, and your older son 
will serve your younger son. Let's take a look at the situation described here, uh, just kind of in the natural. Let's, let's kind of look at it as if Isaac was our neighbor and, and we knew uh, kind of the story of her, uh, of, of he and his wife, Rebecca, starting their family. Uh, it says that Isaac and Rebecca are unable to conceive. It says that Isaac, like a lot of husbands in that situation, Isaac prayed about it and eventually God answered his prayers and Rebecca became pregnant with twins. But it says her, her pregnancy was a very difficult one. Now, through the eyes of an ancient observer, we're told that uh, the two children struggled with each other in her womb. Uh, in our parlance, that probably means that she struggled with cramping. She had other physical difficulties throughout her pregnancy. Um, and so she, too, begins to pray about that. But interestingly, she doesn't specifically ask God to heal her. When Isaac prayed, he told God, uh, here's the problem. Please solve this problem. Remember, when, when, when Rebecca couldn't conceive, he prayed that she, she would be able to conceive, and, and God answered the prayer. But now Rebecca is having a difficult pregnancy, and she's praying a different prayer. She's not saying, God, here's the problem, solve the problem. She's saying, God, here's the problem. Why is this happening to me? Why is this happening to me? It's kind of a different prayer, isn't it? But once again, God answers the prayer. Now, the Bible doesn't tell us exactly how he answered the prayer. It just says that he, he replied to her. He explained to her. How did that happen? Maybe she had a dream that she perceived to be from God. Maybe a prophet came and spoke to her and said, this is the word of the Lord for you. We don't really know. But in any case, Rebecca is assured that her babies will survive. Yes, this is a difficult, complicated pregnancy, but you're going to carry these babies to full term. You're going to give birth to healthy babies. She's assured that they're going to survive. And in fact, these two boys are going to become the fathers of two rival nations. That's the story. I just kind of summed it up for us. That's the story. But why is that story in the Bible? Isn't that kind of an odd story to be in the Bible? You see, I don't think the author of Genesis wanted to include all of those details so that you and I would have a copy of Rebecca's medical records. Right? This is not like a HIPAA violation or something here. I think something different is going on. I, I think the author of Genesis, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is recording these events for us because he wants to remind us something very important about God. And it's this. Our inheritance has come through unlikely paths. We're talking about our inheritance here, right? We're talking about the promises that God made to Abraham that we are now heirs of those promises. And they didn't come in a very expected or in a very likely fashion. Everything in this story is upside down. Think about all the peculiar things that have happened in the story of Abraham and the promises that God made to him and, and his heirs and how this has happened. Think about all of the unlikely situations, whether it's uh, Sarah being well past menopause and not having any children, whether it's uh, her conceiving and, and giving birth to Isaac. The fact that Isaac wasn't actually Abraham's oldest son, but somehow that gets reversed and the blessing falls on Isaac. But think about how Rebecca, the, the author wants us to know this was not an easy pregnancy. She also struggled with infertility. It took a miracle for this to happen. It took a miracle for that to happen. Time and time and time again, things happen that shouldn't happen. 
Things take place that shouldn't take place. And the unifying theme in all of these stories is that God's promises cannot be explained away by coincidence or by convention. God doesn't fulfill his word through the typical expected circumstances of normal life. Remember this, God's ways are not the natural ways of the world. And this is going to become one of the central themes of the entire Bible And it's something we need to always bear in mind. In God's kingdom, things are upside down. They just are. It doesn't work the way we expect things to work in the world. Let me give you a few examples. In God's kingdom, greatness comes by way of humility. Authority comes by way of submission. Wealth comes by way of generosity. Enemies in God's kingdom are to be loved, not hated. And even life itself is to be lost before it could ever be found. That's how things work in God's kingdom. It's all upside down. And that's why we're not going to be surprised as we read through the rest of our Bibles to find things like this. That God would choose the political refugee with the speech impediment to address Pharaoh on his behalf. That God would find a pagan prostitute in Jericho to ensure the survival of his nation. That God would bypass the warriors and choose instead a teenage shepherd boy to be the king. That God would allow his precious people to be conquered and taken into foreign captivity. God's people were like, God, we knew you would never allow that. And God said, watch me. That's why we won't be surprised when God himself chooses to enter the story, not as a conquering hero, but as a helpless baby in the care of naive, unwed parents who find themselves on the run from an evil, evil king. And when he does his message, the message that God has for humanity is take up your cross and follow me. Karl Marx wrote that religion is the opiate of the masses. And he and and many others like him have used this phrase to propose that religion is nothing more than society's way of trying to explain away the ordinary things of life. But in the upside down kingdom of God, nothing could be further from the truth. The religion that we follow, the one that's based on God's word is found in the Bible. This is not a way of explaining away the ordinary things in life. On the contrary, our religion proposes an entirely different framework for life. We aren't concerned with explaining away what's ordinary. We're concerned with recognizing what's extraordinary, what's improbable, what's unlikely, what's illogical, because that's precisely where God is at work. That's where our story is being told. So you might think, that you don't belong in God's kingdom. You might think that you're not worthy or or you can't measure up. You might feel like when it comes to greatness in the kingdom of God, you're on the outside looking in. Leave that nonsense at the door when you walk out today. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you're an heir of the promise. Your inheritance has come through unlikely paths. And it's precisely through the unlikely path of your own life story that the inheritance 
is going to continue to flourish. Your older son will serve your younger son. That's what Rebecca was told. You know, that's not how things are supposed to work. Certainly not in the ancient world, but that's what Rebecca was told about her twin boys. But she was also told that her twin boys would become the starting points of two rival nations, two people groups who would struggle with each other. And even though her boys weren't even born yet, they were already wrestling with each other in utero. You know, in my experience, that's exactly what twin boys do. I had twin boys in my family. I am the older brother to twin boys who were about 10 years younger than me. And when we went to church as a family, when they were little boys, I was a teenager. And I was playing piano on the worship team on a fairly regular basis in the church that we grew up in. And mom and dad would sit uh, with my brothers on the second row right over there, not too far from where mom sits right now. And to this day, when people who went to our church back in those days, uh, when we run into them or when we, when we meet them, they very often will say to us, boy, we remember when your boys were little. We remember Maureen and Ken when my father was alive. We remember how they would sit, those two little boys would sit right down in front in church, right next to you. We remember that they would sit through that entire service and not move a muscle. People would always say that. To this day, people still say that. Now here's the thing, the people that say that, say that because they sat behind my parents and they were looking from the back. I was up on the stage playing the piano, looking from the front. And so what I could see that they could not see was the death grip vice that my mother had. They thought, they thought, isn't that sweet? She has her arm around them. But there was like this kind of thing going on right? They would see the boys just kind of like cuddled up to their mom. But what I could see was her hand on their knees with her fingernails digging. We haven't done anything wrong yet, mom. I know, son, but under pain of death, if you so much as move a muscle during this church service, I will end you. That's kind of how that went. Little boys wrestle. It's what they do. And my brothers never stopped wrestling. For as much as they terrorized each other, though, they were always fiercely protective of each other. And I think that's the way it works for a lot of siblings, twins or otherwise. We fight with each other, but don't anybody else come at us, right? There was never a question as to whose side they were on in any conflict. They were always on each other's side but not so with the twin boys that Rebecca would be having. We get the sense from the story that the physical complications with her pregnancy were actually only the beginning. They were kind of emblematic of how their relationship was gonna go. These two boys were gonna be struggling with each other for the rest of their lives. Even so, let's, let's keep track of the bigger picture here. Let's keep track of the promises because their birth marks a very significant development 
in the fulfillment of the promise that God made to their grandparents, Abraham and Sarah. Way back in Genesis chapter 17, God had promised Abraham and Sarah, not only are you going to be the, the, the parents, he said to Abram, the father of a great multitude, he said, you guys will be the origin of many nations, multiple nations. And then they had one son. You, you can't really get to multiple nations out of one one son but here we are a generation later and we see in abram's grandsons the promise of two distinct nations the promised blessing of god uh, is beginning to take shape albeit through a very very challenging situation challenging situation right what else is new that's the way things work sometimes in god's upside down kingdom God's blessings sometimes come through strife. If you're a follower of Jesus, God's blessing is on your life. That's what the Bible says. For two months, I've been telling you again and again and again, if you're a follower of Jesus, you're an heir of the promise that God made to Abraham. I didn't make that up myself. It's in the Bible. We've read it together again and again and again. That means God's blessing is on you and his promises are for you. But that doesn't mean things are always going to come easily. And we can't allow ourselves as heirs of the promise. We can't allow ourselves to be tricked into thinking that conflict or opposition is evidence that God has changed his mind or evidence that God has closed a door. I mean, how often do we hear that when things get difficult? We, we kind of hyper-spiritualize it sometimes, right? Well, I think God is just closing this door. Sometimes God does close doors, but I don't think we should always be quick to assume that that's what's going on because sometimes his blessings come through strife. I mean, what if Isaac had thought that way? Surely Isaac knew the stories that his parents had told about God's promises. Surely Isaac knew that those promises extended to him as Abraham's heir. What if Isaac thought that every time he faced a difficulty, every time he faced a challenge or some strife in his life, what if he thought that meant that God was just closing the door? Maybe he would have gone all the way to Egypt after all when the famine came, just like his dad had done. Because life with the Philistines was pretty difficult, wasn't it? Maybe he would have stopped trying to dig all those wells we were reading about last week. Maybe he would have given up on the family business because keeping all those flocks watered during a famine seemed impossible. Maybe he would have given up on his marriage to Rebecca because she couldn't provide him with the children that God had promised to him. Maybe he would have given up. But he didn't give up. He knew what God promised about blessings, and he refused to let the challenges he faced get in the way. Because sometimes blessing comes through strife. For Rebecca, the struggles, the physical struggles of a difficult pregnancy eventually came to an end and the babies were born. Let me read that passage to you. It's from Genesis chapter 25, beginning in verse 24. It says, And when the time came to give birth, Rebecca discovered that she did indeed have twins. The first one was very red at birth, 
my experience, most babies are. But that's not what this is saying. The first one was very red at birth and covered with thick hair like a fur coat. That must have been one handsome child, huh? (laughs) So they named him Esau. The other twin was born with his hand grasping Esau's heel. So they named him Jacob. It would have been traditional in that time to give your children names that are puns. Names that have some sort of sound alike for some obvious characteristic. The name Esau is in fact a name, but it rhymes with the ancient Hebrew word for hairy. So they saw a hairy boy and they named him Esau. The name Jacob likewise is a name, but it rhymes with the Hebrew word for heel, because these boys, even in the birth canal, are still wrestling with each other. And Jacob comes out, holding on to his brother's heel. Now, this passage, I think, has captured our imagination for generations and generations, because the descriptions are so vivid and so unusual. But we live in a tremendous age, you know, in the age of artificial intelligence these days. And we have these computers that can take information and, and put together things. Robert, you're, 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 you're advancing my joke here, Robert. <laughs> we have Esau. We have Esau. Look, there he is. Red and hairy. That doesn't do it for you? That doesn't do it? Well, what about this one? Red and hairy Esau. There he was. This is him out playing the guitar in the wilderness. Thank you. (laughs) Um, We do need to remind you of the family tree. Go to that next slide. Remember the family tree we looked at? We've got Rebecca and Isaac. Let's add, go to the next one, and let's add Esau and Jacob. You can call him Elmo if you want. Look where the passage goes from here. As the boys grew up, Esau became a skillful hunter. I had him as a guitar player, but the Bible says he was a hunter. He was an outdoorsman, but Jacob had a quiet temperament, preferring to stay at home. Isaac loved Esau because he enjoyed eating the wild game Esau brought home. But Rebekah loved Jacob. One day when Jacob was cooking some stew, Esau arrived home from the wilderness exhausted and hungry. Esau said to Jacob, I'm starved. Give me some of that red stew. Parenthetically, this is how Esau got his other name, Edom, which means red. So his name was Harry, but his nickname was Red. (laughs) All right, Jacob replied, but trade me your rights as the firstborn son. Look, I'm dying of starvation, said Esau. What good is my birthright to me now? Then Jacob gave Esau some bread and lentil stew. Esau ate the meal, then got up and left. He showed contempt for his rights as the firstborn. We need to explain this story. Perhaps it's a story you've read before. I feel like it's one that often confuses us. In the ancient world, it was very common for one child, typically the oldest boy in the family, to receive the lion's share of the parent's inheritance. We need to discuss this later. We've already seen this in the story. For example, Abraham, when he passed away, he left his entire inheritance to Isaac. In some cultures, it might have been just that the oldest son gets a double portion. 
Uh, everybody gets a little bit, but the oldest son gets twice as much as everyone. There's this idea that one particular descendant, one particular son, is going to get the lion's share of the inheritance. And in Isaac's family, that would have been Esau. He was the oldest son. He would have been due the largest portion of the family estate, perhaps the entire family estate. The idea here is that in this moment, Esau, who's been out in the wilderness for days and days and days, comes home, finds Jacob home alone cooking, and Esau is starving to death. It's not that he was a little hungry and needed lunch or a cliff bar to pick him up. He was starving to death. And Jacob had the ability to save Esau's life. But he decides he's only going to do so if Esau first sells him the rights to their parents' inheritance. So Jacob says, I will only save your life if you give me your share of the inheritance. So let me just ask you this. In this story, we have two boys, Esau and Jacob. Which boy is the good boy? And which boy is the bad boy? The Bible has a surprise for us. It ends the story by saying Esau showed contempt for his rights as the firstborn. In this upside down kingdom story, the Bible says Esau is the one who made the mistake. What's more, as we get to the New Testament and this story is told and retold, we get commentary on it. The author of Hebrews in chapter 12, verse 16 says this to us, make sure that no one is immoral or godless like Esau. Immoral and godless because he was hungry. Make sure no one is immoral or godless like Esau who traded his birthright as the firstborn son for a single meal. Does that, does that not sit well? I, it doesn't sit well with me when I read that story. I have two kids, they aren't twins, but if one of them said, I will let you die rather than feed you unless you give me all your money, I would not be happy with that child. But that's exactly what happens in this story. And the Bible tells us, be careful not to be like Esau. How could that be? Let me give you a little bit of an explanation here. The Bible is a theology book. It's meant to teach us theology. We've used that word before to say theology is words about God. The Bible is meant to help us use truthful words when we talk about God. I'll give you an example here. The Bible is a theology book, not a science book. So there are scientific phenomenon that take place in the Bible, but we can't learn a whole lot about science by reading the Bible. This is why, for instance, when it tells us the story about Joshua praying in the sun, standing still in the sky, we know scientifically that's not really a very accurate description of what actually happened. It doesn't mean the Bible is lying. It just means that the Bible's not speaking to us in scientific terms. It's telling us a theological truth at that moment. You with me? In the same way, the Bible is not really a history book. Oh, it has history in it, 
But it's very difficult to read the Bible and put together historically accurate events because it's it's not a history book. When it gives us lists of kings, it, it leaves some of the kings out and it emphasizes other characters instead because it's not trying to tell us the political history. It's trying to teach us theology. It's trying to tell us things that are true about God. It's not inaccurate in what it says. It's just not purporting to give us the full historical background. So the Bible's not a history book. It's not a science book. Here's one that's maybe a little bit more challenging. I would suggest and propose that the Bible is also not an ethical book. I'm not saying the Bible is unethical. I'm saying its purpose is not, first and foremost, to teach us about ethics. There are all kinds of situations in the Bible where we hear a story about someone who acts unethically and that story is used to tell us something true about God. If you're wondering what I have in mind, Jesus himself did this. He once told a story about a businessman who cheated and swindled his boss out of his entire fortune and then Jesus said, try to be more like that businessman. Right? Without any issues about the ethics of it, he was making a point about something that is true about God. And so you and I read this story about Esau and Jacob, and we are aghast at the ethics of it, at the complete lack of morality. And we're saying, God, Jacob needs a spanking. He acted terribly. And I think God is saying to us, that's not the story I'm trying to tell here. I'm not trying to discuss Jacob's ethics. I'm trying to tell you something that's true about me. And so when we recover from the shock of this story about Jacob's absolutely despicable act towards his brother, which I would point out, God never condones that. God never says he approves of it. When we recover from the shock of all of that, we're left to ask, what does this story teach us about theology? In other words, what does this story help us say about God? And I think the answer to that question is this. Our inheritance is to be greatly valued. And we all probably can agree that it's immoral to cheat your siblings out of their inheritance while they're starving to death. Oh, I hope we can agree on that. And truthfully, I'm willing to bet that God would agree with us on that as well. But according to the Bible, watch this, it's even more immoral, it's even godless for us to devalue the inheritance that God has promised us. It is even more immoral, it is even more godless when we devalue the inheritance that God has promised us. That's how big a deal this is to God. When I was a little boy, my buddies and I would play baseball just about every day in the summer. We would throw a baseball, we would hit a baseball, we would pitch. Even if only two of us could play, we would play baseball one-on-one. That's not easy to do, but we did it. We played baseball in the backyard every day. Um, We treasured baseballs because, you know, suburbia in the 1980s, right? You would hit the baseball over the fence 
into the yard with a dog in it, and so you couldn't get your baseball back. Or you would just play with them so much that they would disintegrate and that baseball was gone. And so it, we're always on the hunt for good baseballs. I was telling Sue this, and she said, why didn't you just ask somebody to buy you some new baseballs? I don't know, that never occurred to us. But I remember that we were always looking for more baseballs, and they were, they were precious, they were precious. We, we would always need to have the baseballs to play baseball. Uh, one particular summer, my friend from down the street said, oh, I got, a, I got a baseball here we could use. And so we used Brian's major league baseball all summer long. We played with it every day, rain and shine. We beat the tar out of this thing. Uh, it was like, it was our favorite baseball to play with. And uh, by the end of the summer, this baseball was a sorry excuse for, for a plaything, right? And then Brian's dad asked him where that uh, autographed Kansas City Royals baseball was. That, it, that was his dad's favorite team growing up and he had gotten the autographs of all the players. I, I remember trying to figure out what all the writing was on that ball, but... <sighs> yeah, yeah. In Christ, we've been given a great gift, something of tremendous value. It's a tre treasure of surpassing worth. Jesus said the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant on the lookout for choice pearls. When he discovered a pearl of great value, he sold everything he owned and he bought it. Can I mix my metaphors? When he found the pearl of great value, he didn't hit it around his backyard with a baseball bat all summer, <laughs> right? That would have been devaluing this tremendous, precious, Treasure. Have you ever given somebody a gift and they were like, yeah, whatever, and they didn't use it the right way? That doesn't feel good. That doesn't feel good. And part of what God is telling us in this weird, weird, weird story about Jacob and Esau is that our inheritance is to be greatly valued. Sell everything you have and buy in on this. Treat it as a treasure of great value. Wisdom itself compels us to leverage every asset we have for the heavenly inheritance that we've been promised. Foolishness and godlessness tempt us to devalue the inheritance and to treat it with contempt like Esau did. And that's why the Bible says, don't be like Esau. Don't be like Esau. So you ask yourself, well, uh, how, how do we devalue the inheritance? Like, what does, that, what does that actually mean? This sounds like serious stuff. What does that actually mean? Well, what is our inheritance? We are heirs of the promise. Talking about the promises that God made to Abraham and how they find themselves in our lives. God promised Abraham a people. A place. He promised him prestige. He promised him protection. He promised him a purpose. We are the heirs of that promise. That means God has given us in Christ Jesus. He's given us a people. He's given us, look around. For better or worse, folks, <laughs> these are your people. That's what God said. He said, I have worked through millennia to give you this people as your inheritance as the pearl of great value, as the treasure in your life. But some of us would rather stay comfortable and just do religion on our own. And we devalue the inheritance. God has promised us protection. 
God has said, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you, right? He has said, I am with you always. He's promised us protection. Some of us would rather put our faith and our trust in the weapons of this world. And we devalue our inheritance. I got one more. God has promised us a purpose, hasn't he? Do you remember the the purpose promise given to Abram? He said, you're going to be a blessing to every nation on earth. You are going to be a blessing to every nation on earth. Folks, in Christ Jesus, that promise has fallen on us. It's our purpose. It's why we're here, to be a blessing to every nation on earth. The gospel, the good news of Christ Jesus is a blessing to every people on earth. And he's given it to us to take care of. But too many of us place a greater value on social comfort levels. And so we keep it to ourselves. And when we do that, we devalue the inheritance that God has given us in Christ Jesus. Isaac and Esau. It's a weird, weird, weird story, is it not? But it's so important for us to bear this in mind. How like our God, the God of an upside down kingdom where everything is backwards and unexpected to tell us this weird, strange story about two boys who were born thousands of years before us. Where it seems so obvious that here's the bad guy and here's the good guy. And yet God says, no, 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 no. Be careful. Don't be like Esau. Because what I have given you, what I have promised you, is of so much more value than you realize. Would you pray with me? Father God, we desire to be good stewards of the promises. We desire to be heirs of the promise who do well to care for it. And to value it. We sang earlier today, Lord, I'm amazed by you. Father, I wonder how often we lose sight of our own amazement. I wonder how often we take for granted the miraculous in our midst. I wonder how often our religion is little more than the opiate for the masses. It's little more than explanations for everyday things because we have forgotten that we serve an extraordinary God. We have forgotten that the the gift that we have been given is of surpassing value. I wonder how often, Lord, we would devalue and toss around and destroy that precious thing that you have given us. Teach us to be more aware. Help us to be more discerning. Guide us in ways, Lord, that will enable us to receive the promises that you've made for us. We pray this today in the name of Jesus. And everybody says, Amen. 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 God bless you.